Welcome to part 2, continuing the story of Aerosmith's grind. What's a boy from a small town like Hopedale, Massachusetts, 25 miles southwest of Boston, supposed to do? While Anthony Joseph Perry's parents may have had other aspirations for their son, the son wasn't reading from the same book. Early on, Joe idolized Jacques Cousteau, and he wanted to become a marine biologist. It was hardly surprising, with his mother a swimming instructor, who also taught gym class at public schools. Activities outdoors, whether in the waters of Lake Sunapee or exploring the curiosities in the woods around his home were adventures. His father was of Portuguese descent, a university-educated accountant who had served time in the military. They were disciplined, but loving and nurturing parents. They valued education and knew firsthand the doors it could open. And while Joe initially had lofty aspirations, he simply lacked the academic ability to translate those dreams into reality. Plagued by a learning disability, ADHD, it didn't matter how much ambition Joe had at a time when such afflictions weren't diagnosed or understood. Joe's introduction to the guitar was casual. He recalled in caring, my uncle had a guitar he built to play folk songs on, and I thought that was cool, so I picked up on it. It would only be in his early teens that he started to take it more seriously. Joe's first guitar was purportedly a $14 Sears Silvertone that he described in Circus Magazine in 1975 as, so cheap that's what your mother would buy you when she really wanted you to be a doctor. Essentially self-taught, he told Guitar Player Magazine in 1979 about taking a single lesson, I took one lesson from a guy, and then a week later when I was driving to school, I saw a hearse in front of his house. He had died, so, that was the last lesson I took. I just took it as an omen. Initially, Joe wasn't a good enough guitarist, so he ended up as the vocalist in his first band, The Chimes of Freedom, with Dave Mead, Bill Wright, and John Alden. Keyboard player Tony Nero joined later, and Bill was later a member of another band that opened for Aerosmith. Joe kept on practicing the guitar, slowly improving. He explained to Kerrang, I listened to Roy Orbison and played along, and then came the Beatles, and I saw how many girls they got, so I carried on. Dave Mead recalled Joe's dedication to the Milford Daily News in 2005, he'd just sit in his room and play guitar all the time. I mean really extensively, and when he wasn't doing that, he'd be out looking at other bands. Apart from being a friend, Dave also influenced Joe in other ways. His older brother, whose bass he often borrowed, had a music collection that they both explored, moving on from the Beatles and Stones into discovering John Mayall, Eric Clapton, The Kinks, and John Lee Hooker. All contributed to Joe's musical foundations, and Dave also taught Joe some things on the guitar. With the cavalcade of British invasion bands of the time, Joe was soon introduced to the Dave Clark Five and his musical vocabulary continued to grow. But he was also inspired and influenced closer to home. Joe also received some lessons from Steve Rose, the guitarist in the local professional band, the Wildcats, whom he had befriended. Joe recalled on Noise Creep in 2012, that Steve just impressed on me that, the music on TV and on the radio, it was not untouchable. It's like being a baseball fan at age 7 and watching a major league game on TV. It's a pretty long jump to make it there. But Steve made it seem attainable. And he helped teach me to play. At the end of 10th grade, Joe's grades were suffering at Hopedale High School. He was shipped off to boarding school at the Vermont Academy in Saxton's River, Vermont, 100 miles to the northwest of Hopedale, to repeat the grade in hopes the change of location would spur academic growth. 
while he continued playing guitar, getting together with friends during home visits. He also stayed physically active, earning his varsity letter on the school football team in 1967. While attending school, Joe was a member of a prep band named Just Us. The school's website suggests that he was also involved with another band, the Surfing Ardarks. The curious youth had plenty of ambition but was unable to translate his intellectual prowess into good grades, even at Vermont Academy, to the chagrin of his ever-pragmatic parents Tony and Mary. In some ways, the school may have had an opposite effect on Joe. He recalled in circus raves, that's when I was first exposed to a lot of weirdos. What kind? Oh, you know, New York weirdos. He stubbornly refused to cut his hair and dropped out of school just weeks shy of graduation, but nevertheless espoused his father's strong work ethic while toiling in a Hopedale factory and working menial jobs while at the family's summer retreat in Sunapee. During the summers at Lake Sunapee, Joe worked the sorts of jobs many teens do. He met David Pudge, Scott working in the kitchen of the Anchorage restaurant, and the two decided to get a band together. Scott already knew Tom Hamilton, who had by that time flipped to bass, and Pipe Dream was formed. While lineups of these early bands were often fluid, the band included Tom's school friend and one-time Perry girlfriend, Kathy Lowe, on vocals. A talented singer in her own right, along with her sister, her addition allowed them to expand their set ad songs such as Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit and Somebody to Love to their repertoire. The band evolved into Plastic Glass, which included Pudge, Joe, Tom, and John McGuire on vocals and guitar. Ultimately, the core of Pudge, Joe, and Tom became the jam band and the three would play together through the summer of 1970. Kathy headed for Paris and recorded several folk albums. During 1969, while days would be spent working, the weekends were free for music explorations. Joe's education continued, seeing the likes of the Jeff Beck Group at Symphony Hall or Fleetwood Mac at the Boston Tea Party. The performers he saw there, or elsewhere, added to his musical education. Joe recalled that it was seeing Jeff and Jimmy Page perform Stroll On in the movie Blow Up had a definite impact on his perspective towards playing guitar. He told Guitar Aficionado in 2014 he saw it as a matter of, bring on those pedals and turn this shit up. But for all intents, at this stage in his life, Joe was simply biding his time. He told Kerrang, I held down a day job and had a band at night with Tom Hamilton. All we wanted was for people to see us, so we'd get another gig. It was an excuse to party and have girls around. There was no great plan in place, though Joe did at least appease his parents by obtaining his high school equivalency. In Hopedale, Joe had played in a band named Flash at various times. It included Dave Mead on bass. Dave booked shows for the band at the local venues Aerosmith later performed at, notably the Hopedale Town Hall Auditorium on June 6, 1968. Joe recalled in Caring, I always thought it would just be a hobby. We'd play at parties when I was a kid, one guy had a garage, and we'd open up the doors so kids could come and watch. The bass player got us a gig at his brother's house, and he says, you'll get free beers and five dollars each, and I said, what are they going to give us money for? It didn't occur to me that you could get paid for it. Band members in Joe's bands varied depending on who was available at the time, and often continued when he wasn't around. Back in Sunapee, in the summer of 1969, Joe found Tom and Pudge planning to have a jam band utilizing a different guitarist, Guy Williams. Joe wasn't about to be excluded. Tom recalled in Walk This Way, one day we're down at Guy's house, practicing. 
Joe comes over, plugs in, and proceeds to put on the most outrageous display of guitar incredibleness that I'd ever seen in my life. He had practiced his ass off all winter and had all these moves with the whammy bar and he was playing all these outrageous sounds. The rest of us stopped playing. We just stood there watching this solo performance with our mouths open and I understood that Joe had taken a huge leap. That the band recorded one of their sets live on August 30, 1969, plus part of a rehearsal as a commemorative of the summer that Perry came of age as a guitarist. The following summer things would change, with Joe and Tom planning how they could escape their rural rut. The catalyst turned out to be Mark Lehman, who conveniently happened to have a van. Tom Hamilton was born in Colorado Springs, Colorado, in 1951, the third of four children. His father was active in the U.S. Air Force during his early life, resulting in the family moving several times throughout his youth. Once his father left the service, the family settled in New London, New Hampshire, where he worked as what Tom described in 1973 as an industrial tool caster. In reality, he worked for Pine Tree Castings, a subsidiary of Sturm, Ruger & Company, Inc., a producer of parts for various firearms. Small town doesn't quite describe a town with a population of just 2,236 in 1970, though that's certainly more folk than the number resident at Lake Sunapee during the winter. Tom started playing guitar when he was 12, picking up his older brother's Fender when he wasn't home. He'd seen his brother playing along with Elvis when they were younger, but had also been given a toy organ one Christmas. Like many kids of his generation, Tom started out by teaching himself with some help from his brother and the play guitar with the Ventures instructional albums, which included lessons to their hits including Raunchy, Tequila, Pipeline, and Walk, Don't Run. Those records also included the bass parts for players to learn. As a youth, Tom acted in a school production of The Skin of Our Teeth and played on the tennis team. School friend Kathy Lowe recalled that Tom was a kind young man who was well-regarded. However, he was nearly kicked out of New London High School after an acid-dropping incident that left him with a fine and curfew. He was also labeled as the town hoodlum. Early bands Tom played with included Sam Citrus and the Merciless Tangerines, which resulted in him switching to bass. His teacher for that instrument would be Bill Wyman via Rolling Stones recordings. By his sophomore year, he had met David Pudge Scott and was playing in Plastic Glass. Tom recalled in Shark Magazine in 1989, Joe and I used to get a band together every summer, I've known him since I was 14 or 15. We put a band together called The Pipe Dream when I was about 15. And then, at the end of the summer I would go back to school, and he was a summer kid, so he'd go back to Massachusetts and go back to school. The summer after that we put another band together, called Plastic Glass, and then the two summers after that, we had a band called The Jam Band. Over several summers he played with David and Joe in the jam band, at the Lake Sunapee Yacht Club, the barn, the Lake Sunapee Cruise Boat, and house parties and colleges in the area. Tom described the band's ambitions in an interview with the Las Vegas Sun in 2002, when Joe and I were teenagers, our ambition was to play the barn. That was making it. We became the house band there, and the owner let us stay in a deserted farmhouse up the street, but we had to be the cleaner-uppers of the barn. We were the janitors. At one show he and Joe attended, Tom was inspired that he too could make it in a professional band when he watched the performance of bass player of Spirit, Mark Andes. But, as Kathy Lowe recalled, he was the only person I ever knew in my life who knew at a very young age exactly what he wanted to do. 
He wanted to play bass in a rock band, and that's what he did. As he finished up school, Tom made non-musical plans for his future. He to the Lexington Herald leader, I was accepted into a couple of good drama schools, but three months after graduating from high school, I was living in Boston. I dropped the bomb on my parents that Joe Perry and I were going to start a rock band. In that brief period, the pair made a full-time commitment to music in the summer of 1970. Moving to Boston to form a full-time band, Pudge wouldn't be coming. He was several years younger and intent on completing high school, but Lehman became the pair's cheerleader. Joe, borrowing money from his mother, combined with his own savings, had enough to get them started and the trio arrived in Boston in August 1970. Tom also had experience fending for himself outside the family home, following a haircut standoff with his father. The first thing the trio did was rent an apartment at 1325 Commonwealth, number 22. They also quickly obtained access to the Boston University West Campus dorm basement and started rehearsing, sometimes with Pudge Scott behind the kit. Then they started the process of finding suitable band members. Like Stephen, Bronx-born Joey Kramer had grown up in Yonkers. His father, Mickey, was a hard-working businessman while his mother, Doris, stayed home to take care of Joey and his three siblings. Both parents were first-generation Americans infused by the ethos of their parents' immigrant experience. Joey explained in his autobiography, Hit Hard, this whole immigrant experience shaped my parents and how they tried to raise me. They were all about assimilation and material gain, fitting in, and image meant everything to them and was pretty typical for parents in the 50s. Financial security, safety, respect, were all important characteristics in the immigrant community. Both of Joey's parents had served in the war with his father being injured. Joey suggests that in a day when PTSD was not diagnosed, his father had likely been damaged by the horrors he experienced, coupled with a challenging childhood of his own. There would be many factors contributing to making Joey's upbringing anything but pleasant, a childhood filled with what Joey describes in his autobiography as emotional and physical abuse. The effects of his formative years would linger and color much of his life. Not surprisingly, Joey's education was full of challenges. He acted out in school and his education suffered accordingly. Musically, as a youngster, Joey started out trying to learn the accordion, but soon found listening to the crooners of the day, Paul Anka or Joey D, capturing his attention. Even with lessons, Joey just couldn't fall in love with his instrument of choice, much to his disappointment when he'd see friends passionately enraptured by their instruments and being willing to practice for hours and hours. One Christmas, one of Joey's friends received a Slingerland drum kit and invited Joey over to his house to check it out. The sparkle of the finish, the shine of the metal, and the feel of the drumstick in his hand hitting the snare was enough for Joey to finally have that longed for emotional connection with an instrument. He recalled in his autobiography, it was a rush like nothing I'd ever felt before. Right there. I was thinking, this is good. This feels really good. Everything I'd experienced up to that point, all the emotions I couldn't articulate or even process or understand, I could feel being channeled through those two wooden sticks and onto the heads of those drums. With money saved, Joey eventually managed to persuade his parents to allow him to rent a kit of his own, a three-piece set of Red Sparkle Kents. It was enough for him to get down to the business of learning and at age 13, Joey discovered one thing, he enjoyed hitting hard. Once the Beatles hit the American shores and British invasion started, Joey knew what he wanted to be. There was no doubt. He wanted that drum throne. 
He wanted to be the one perched behind the other performers, with the best view of the stage and the audience. He had found his muse. Joey started to improve his rudimentary techniques, disassembling the parts that the likes of Dave Clark, Ringo, or Dino Danelli played on the records of the day. While the latter of these influences is better known for his work with the Rascals, his background was rooted in jazz. He provided a link to the great drummers of the big band era, such as Gene Krupa. If Joey saw a drummer on the television, he studied their playing style and technique. It's pretty clear that Joey had a natural talent, a good eye and ear, married to a dedication to his percussive craft. Getting into bands also offered the opportunity to escape his home. It wasn't long before Joey was playing with his first groups, in 1964 the Dynamics or shortly afterward the Medallions. As the British invasion progressed, so did Joey's education, adding the likes of Keith Moon to his list of teachers. He had also moved on to playing with a more serious group, the King Bees, which included the talented Bobby Mayo. Unfortunately, a poor report card resulted in Joey's parents confiscating his drums. With a battle of the bands coming up at school, Joey was in desperate straits to not lose what he loved doing. Through a band member's brother, arrangements were made for Joey to borrow another drummer's kit for the show. That drummer? One Stephen Tallarico, who even at that stage had reached a level all the amateurs in the neighborhoods could only dream of. Stephen even joined the King Bees during their performance to sing a couple of Stone songs. Ultimately, following a move to Eastchester and trouble in his new school, Joey was transferred to a private school, ending his participation with the King Bees. A new band soon followed, the Radicals. A teenage Joey also encountered Raymond Tabano, and it would be at Raymond's place that Stephen introduced him to the drumming of Mitch Mitchell via Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland album. Joey would play with an assortment of bands, such as Strawberry Ripple and Nino's Magic Show, where he applied his new learning to his drumming as he evolved. After graduating from Thornton Donovan High School in New Rochelle, the high point, literally and figuratively of Joey's summer, was attending the Woodstock Music Festival during August 1969 with friends. While there he unexpectedly bumped into Stephen Tallarico. The cosmos may have been dropping subtle hints. In the fall, Joey enrolled at Chamberlain Junior College in Boston, though he really had no interest in pursuing further education, but had nothing more appealing to do at the time. By the end of his first semester, he was expelled for troublemaking, but was unwelcome back at home. He stayed in Boston and got a menial job to make ends meet. It was another fortunate situation that his boss was also involved with the R&B soul band, Chubby, and the Turnpikes, who later became the Tabaras, the Uptown Four are also sometimes mentioned. It was during his time working with the band that Joey became more of a field player, where he learned to use the drums to communicate his emotions with the other band members and audience. The music the band performed involved dance moves, so he also learned the importance of choreographed percussive enunciation, playing drum accents that complemented or enhanced the movements of the band members on stage. He told Modern Drummer in 1984, those cats taught me a lot about playing with feeling. I remember playing in a 10-piece group that included four singers out in front. I used to go to rehearsals with just the singers, so I had to learn to accent all their choreography. That was real interesting and real helpful to me as a rock drummer later on. Joey would also take inspiration from James Brown and his all-in-physical effort that became an important visual aspect of the performance, something he'd translate into his solos a few years later. 
Unfortunately, hard living with the Soul Brothers came at a steep price, and Joey ended up fired from his job and hospitalized, suffering from hepatitis. He was so sick, he had to return to his parents in the middle of 1970 to recuperate. By September 1970, Joey was back in Boston and had enrolled at the Berklee School of Music. He didn't last long, recalling in Modern Drummer, getting into that angle of drum playing was suddenly turning into a negative source as far as the direction I wanted to go in. I was playing matched grip because I was self-taught, and at the school, they wanted me to play conventional grip. Also, I wanted to take lessons on the vibes because I had always wanted to play the vibes. Well, they wouldn't let me do it. Nothing really worked out for me at Berkeley, so I left. A brief attempt to get a band together came to nothing, but Joey discovered that Raymond was living in Boston, and the two soon reconnected. It would be Raymond who told Joey about Joe and Tom looking for a drummer, and he soon auditioned for them. He suggested in his autobiography that even at that early stage, the two had secured the use of rehearsal space in the basement of 500 Commonwealth Avenue at Boston University. According to Joey's account, they initially passed on him, preferring to go with a singing drummer they knew. End of part two.